Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. If you love the games, we are the show for you. Each week we share stories from athletes and people behind the scenes to help you have more fun watching the games. I'm your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? Bonjour. Bonjour. You got to use some French. I did. I, I was traveling in Morocco. I got to use some French that we have been practicing and trying to learn for Paris. And I discovered I have a very long way to go. <laughs> I could ask a question, but I could not understand the answer. And I was told by people who do speak French that the French in Morocco is very pure. It's not like French-Canadian French, where even French people don't understand what the Canadians are saying, that the Moroccan French is very good. And I couldn't figure out what they were saying to me. So I have a lot more work to do. All right. We'll get on our limp listening comprehension then. <laughs> I could add un stilo. And then she answered me and I'm like, I still don't know where to find a pen. Aw. Yeah. Aww. Well, you're partway there though. That's I know, good. but I did, I did impress my daughter with being able to ask for things. So I'm going to count that as a win. Definitely. What's also a win is that Book Club Claire is back today with a selection that you might want to pick up for some summer reading listeners or winter reading if you are in the Southern Hemisphere. It is called The Hard Parts, A Memoir of Courage and Triumph by Oksana Masters. Take a listen to our conversation. Book Club. Claire, welcome back. We are talking Oksana Master's memoir, The Hard Parts. It's a memoir of courage and triumph. What do you got for us? I have a very good book. I don't want to spoil it. I guess I did spoil it. But the book was very engaging. If you are somebody that picks up on ghostwriters like I have over the past, what, four or five years of us doing book club, she got a very good ghostwriter to really make the words pop so you really feel her story. The story itself and how she tells it is a little more interesting. But first, before we get to that, I wanted to get your thoughts on the book. Yeah, I totally agree about the ghostwriter. Oksana wrote this with Cassidy Randall and big prompts to her. This was so engaging. And I'd be curious to know the process that they went through and how much did Cassidy have to draw out of Oksana in terms of trying to get the story they wanted to get? What did Oksana come to the table with? Okay, I'm laying it all on the line because she is very frank in a lot of this book. She she does dive into the hard parts of her life and it's just really well told overall, like really well written, really engaging. The subject matter can be difficult, but it's also inspiring and it's also a fairly quick read. You get I got really engaged with the book and found myself flying through it. I agree. The engagement was definitely there. You didn't feel like it was a slog 
whenever it got to almost that point, it was immediately transitioning to a new section of the book. I believe there were three parts total. So it was her time in Ukraine when she was an orphan in the orphanage, and then her youth when she moved to the United States with her mother, her adopted mother, and then her time training for Paralympic sport, and then eventually going to the Paralympics. I will say I was kind of frustrated because this book just came out, what, February of this year, so 2023, but it doesn't talk about Beijing 2022 at all. And that was her dominant Paralympics. And there's nothing mentioned about that. And I thought that with the book coming out in 2023, there might be an addendum or that might be the final chapter kind of showing that she's made it. But no, they end with Pyeongchang when she wins the gold medal there. And I think that was a little frustrating for me because I did want to hear more about what I saw of her in China. And it stops before that point. Right. And they postponed the publication of this book by a year. So I thought, okay, we postponed it because she did so well at Tokyo 2020. And then we had this dominance at Beijing. And then you get the book and it does end in Pyeongchang. And you're like, wow. But maybe that's what they ultimately decided the arc should be. Like that's the games where she really kind of came into her own as a winter Paralympian and she had to give up on rowing and so she found cross country and biathlon but maybe they figured that was a better arc to tell and not get into the last two games which I was really surprised and I kind of wondered how they could have made that work because it would have been more fun as Oksana got bigger and bigger on the global stage really and more and more people know the story. You do find that you want to connect with the, the bitch. Like, I remember Chernobyl. So that the connection of her birth defects that she suffered, that resonates with me. Because I do remember all of that. And so London 2012, the Paralympics, I don't really remember too much of. And then Rio, I, I would dip in and out of the Paralympics, but there wasn't a ton more coverage. And I do remember the bionic elbow and the amazing taping jobs during <laughs> Pyeongchang for Oksana. But then this, the last two games are really where she just, her status as a superstar just catapulted. And you mentioned the arc of her story. And I think that's where I had the biggest problem. I get that she starts in a very dark place and then this kind of shows her coming out of it. But she had such trauma as a child with physical abuse, sexual abuse, a, a myriad of things, watching her best friend get murdered in front of her and not being able to do anything about it. And she's mentioning this in the book. And you're kind of, I was kind of just waiting for that resolution of her sitting down with somebody and talking it out. And that never happens. It doesn't happen until the epilogue when she's like, and then I started to tell her. And I'm just like, okay, where is the mention of the importance of therapy or counseling? Something that if other people are reading this book and maybe they've also gone through a similar kind of trauma, heaven forbid, that they can see, okay, this is what Oksana did in order to overcome it. And with stopping in Pyeongchang, we never see her 
working through it so that she emerges. I mean, it kind of shows I won the gold medal and everything was okay. And then I started to talk about it. It's like, okay, I want to hear you processing this because I've gone through similar anxiety issues myself. And I know how important it is to talk about it. And it's not just over when you finish the first counseling session. It's going to take a long time, or maybe it will take the rest of your life to get through it. And we never heard that from her. And that was a little frustrating for me, especially we're recording this in May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. And to not have that be featured in this book when she's talking about these struggles that she had, that was frustrating. So yes, it was a good book, a good read, but it did not resolve in the way that it really needed to in my eyes. I would agree with you because there are so many issues that she goes through. And especially as she becomes an adult, she gets into an abusive relationship and she gets out of that. But it, and it's not magical because you do see her struggling with the tendency to fall back into that trap or fall back into feeling worthless. But we don't see the work she's doing to get out of it. And maybe somebody thought that somebody in the making of this book thought that would not be as powerful a message or would take too much time. But I I, want to talk to that person. (laughs) I agree with you because it's very important to say it. It's not just magic and it's not just time. These things you get out of them a lot of times with the help of a professional. And we didn't see that. We also didn't. I mean, one of the interesting things I thought was in the beginning of the book, we get her mother's story. First, it's Oksana's story. It's a memoir. It's Oksana's memoir. But all of a sudden, we get to all of the work her mother did to get Oksana, all of the preparation. And it's one of those, that little bit, which I was, I thought was very engaging. I loved reading about it. But I also thought, that's not Oksana's story. Oksana doesn't, shouldn't be able to tell that story. That's her mother's story. And if we were going to have that, I would have been interested in more mother's story throughout in how she fell in love with Oksana immediately upon seeing that picture. But then the struggles you have along the way of bringing up a child who you can't speak to each other initially, barely speak to each other. And then your child has all these physical and mental issues that you, how do you, how are you dealing with them? I was curious it, it never mentions her talking about her struggles to her boyfriend, Aaron Pike, or to her mother or to anybody, really. So how did, I mean, the book is not the first time that they're reading about these issues. So when did that damn burst and she's finally able to talk about it? Those are the things that I want to hear. I want to, you know, you build up these relationships with gay masters and with Aaron Pike and with other friends that she trains with, but you don't talk about how she opens up to them finally. It, you keep it closed in. I don't like that. And it doesn't serve the ending of the story as well as the beginning when you're hearing about all this, these traumas that she's dealing with. I want some resolution. I want her boyfriend to be incredibly supportive, which undoubtedly he was, but we just never read about it. I don't know if that was a personal thing, but it, she got very intimate with many things. And to not include that, just I had an issue with it. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, you don't have to. That's that's not something to apologize for. Allison, what are your thoughts? I was surprised as well in kind of opening up and not opening up. 
there was so much personal detail. There was so much really horrific uh, stories to be told. And yet I have to agree, there was still a wall. And I don't know if that was her wall, the ghostwriter's wall, the publisher's wall. Where was the disconnect? And when you were talking about we started to get her mother's story. It reminded me when we were talking about Mike Schultz's book, how we wished it was a joint book between Mike and his wife, because we really wanted to hear what he thought. And this is almost the same thing. Like I wish she and her mother had written some of it together up to a point, because her mother is part of the story throughout. And what was that really like? Because obviously it was hard. It was difficult. She portrays her mother in a particular way, as most daughters would. She's very protective of her mother. She really doesn't ever say anything bad about her mother. But there's no way that that mother wasn't struggling in managing all of these things. There was financial difficulties. There was difficulties in just getting through the day and all those pieces. And I would have liked to see a little more honesty is not the right word because she was very honest, but a little less gloss. And I, and there was a one scene with Aaron Pike where she talks about him touching her scars. And that was the place where that conversation that you're thinking of, Claire, would have fit so nicely to say, what did he say to you other than he held you when you cried? And maybe that's all it was. Maybe they really didn't get into too much of the detail. And his attitude was, I don't care. I love you. Whatever that happened before I met you. And maybe that's what he said. And I wish we had heard what he had said as well, because he's adorable. And I want him to be even more adorable the more I know about him, because he does seem like he's an amazing athlete on his own. They're great together. It was fun. I just saw them at the Kentucky Derby. And that was fantastic. I'm like, I'm reading about you when you met. So (laughs) I would have liked a little bit more around, but maybe... She felt like that was his story to tell, not hers. I did enjoy also seeing them at the Kentucky Derby. And I knew that Oksana Masters and Aaron Pike were a couple before I started reading this book. So as I'm going through the book and reading and I hear about her other boyfriends, I'm just like, oh, when's Aaron coming into this story? <laughs> <laughs> and finally she mentions him and I'm just like, yes, he's here. <laughs> go and, no, go and be we- awesome together. Exactly. But we don't want him coming in like a white knight because we want her succeeding on her own. And right. I think that came across that he wasn't a white knight, that he was that they very much are partners and they help each other and make each other better athletes and make each other better people, which makes me love them even more. <laughs> One thing that really bothered me when she talks about Jane, her training partner and fellow skier. Did you go investigate who this could be? I I thought about it, but I didn't. Because I did. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want to name names because I could not come up. I think I know who it is. But. Well, who would you have to tell us? Tatiana McFadden. Tatiana McFadden. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Did Tatiana do skiing too? Yes. She she hasn't done a lot in a while. And at Sochi, she met. Her birth mother, as was explained in the book, as Oksana describes it. And I almost wanted to say that detail bothered me a lot because she had a lot of not nice things to say about quote unquote Jane and especially Jane's mother. She was very hard on her. And I kind of want to say that bothered me because 
there aren't that many people it can be. How many other women were on that team that are from that area of the world who were adopted by Americans? Either name names or don't tell the story. Either own up to it, use the person's real name, or leave it out. Because this sort of pseudonym thing felt like, oh, I'm not really telling on them and really talking badly about them, but I am because you can go figure out who it is. Well, the names of certain persons have been changed. <laughs> I was going to ask if there was a something somewhere in the book that would have said that. I didn't read that when I initially went through it. So I, I mean, go. that made a lot of sense when it came to the abusive boyfriend because he's not famous. He's not well known. If she calls him out as an abuser, that's problematic. But in this situation, it's you've got two or three choices and it becomes very quickly obvious who it could be. And I felt that was a that was kind of a cop out on her part. Or maybe it was the publisher who said we can't use the real name. But it, it feels it, it feels like you copied off of somebody else's paper and just changed a couple adjectives. You know, it, and that whole section didn't really bother me all that much. So it's interesting how how it reads to different people. This is not the first autobiography that we've read where the author has been pointedly against certain people and kind of skewers them in the in their own book. So it, I guess since it was not done as pointedly as certain other books that we've read, I guess it, it kind of gets more of a pass. But yeah, I did kind of feel like, I did, because I didn't know that names were changed, I'm kind of like, well, I don't remember a Jane at these Paralympics. So yeah, now it, it makes more sense. What did you think about her talking about her Paralympic experience? I already mentioned, and we'll kind of ignore the fact right now that it doesn't cover Tokyo and Beijing, which is irritating to me because that's when I saw her compete, but talking about London and Sochi and Rio and Pyeongchang, how did you think she, did she cover the Paralympics like you thought they would be covered or did she kind of gloss over them a little bit? I thought London was a little glossed because we, or it was simply interesting to read because we've heard how life-changing those Paralympics were and how it was so different than everything else that any of those athletes had experienced. And obviously that was her first experience. She didn't have anything to compare it to, but just that atmosphere that we keep hearing about over and over again did not come through. Although it came through... To me, when they were done with competition and got to go to the village, since they were in a remote area, in a remote village, then she saw how it was different. So so that kind of helped. But I kind of felt like both Paralympics, maybe not so much London, but Rio, I felt, was really downplayed compared to the Winter Paralympics. And I don't know if that's just... The last games we had was a winter one, so that's where my last memories of her competing are. Or if, I, I don't know, because she was so successful in Tokyo. And Claire, to get back to your point, why we didn't have Tokyo, that would have continued that arc from Rio. Because she, she switched from rowing to cycling, did not have success that she wanted in cycling in Rio, but she got it in Tokyo. So we didn't get the really the ending of that arc. And Pyeongchang was interesting to read about because we did cover Pyeongchang. 
And I remember Jill and I having a conversation about watching Oksana and that injury that she had. And I remember saying on the show, how can she compete with this arm held together with tape and not have her natural reflexes just refuse to move her arm? And this whole book answered the question because she talked about the pain cave. She talked about she does things that her body tells her she can't do. So those natural reflexes that I was talking about, like when you touch a hot oven, you pull back. She does not have those in the same way because of these things that have happened to her. And so it was interesting to get basically the answer to my question from 2018 saying, how does she do this? How do you not open your hand when it hurts? She just doesn't because that's and something that the kids always say, that's not how I was raised. That's not how she hurt the early part of her life was everything was about your instincts do not force behavior. And that's what kept her alive all those years in the orphanage. Let's go to the orphanage. I mean, let's not go to the orphanage, but that was quite the way to kind of start the book. You just hear about this dismal place you don't get the whole story right away. A lot of it, it, probably the most traumatic parts are hidden, even though you, even though she talks about how her friend was killed when they tried to sneak down for some food late at night. And you think that's the worst of it. No, it's not. But even then, just hearing the trauma that she dealt with in the early part of the book, just being in a place where she's she has two legs, but they are not functioning the way she wants. And she's trying to get around in a place that is definitely not ADA compliant. She doesn't have a wheelchair or anything to get around. And she's also treated horribly by her caretakers, dressed up for people to shop the orphans around to see who they can pick as their person. And miraculously, Gay Masters comes upon her picture somewhere. If there was ever a place that I was going to stop reading, it would be there just because it, it didn't seem like there was a lot of hope in it. But I knew there was good stuff coming, so I kept going. Maybe talking to Allison in particular, so somebody who is a mother, what did you take from that first part of the book when you're seeing a young child dealing with something like that? It's funny you say that because often I react with that mother brain, but I didn't. And I reacted with the mother brain when she was with Gay. And I think it was because that orphan part of the story I could separate from because if I took any of it in, I couldn't, I could have gotten stopped at page eight. I could not have gotten through that. And I think I definitely, what's so horrific about that, it is so horrific. You can't even put it into words. And yet she did. And that was a really, I think, successful part of the book. And I use successful in terms of its ability to convey the horror. It was rough. And it didn't get not rough ever, really. Because anytime those stories came up or she's remembering something or she drops a little bit more information. And once you got to about the middle of the book, you knew what that other piece of information was, even though she didn't quite say it yet. You knew what was coming which I thought was very skillfully done so that it was shocking, but not, or I should say it was disturbing, but not shocking when she finally does reveal the extent of the abuse at the orphanage. But it's rough. I mean, we should not sugarcoat 
what you're going to get for the certainly the first third of the book. Yeah, if you haven't read this yet, just be warned. Trigger warnings for those that might not handle that kind of traumatic issues very well. That's what's going to be there. And it kind of does stay through the whole book. We're all women and we kind of understand how that kind of issue, the sexual abuse at such a young age and trying to get through it, I guess it, it does swing around, back around to me being frustrated that it wasn't fully finished in how she was going to cope with it. But how do you think, let's just take it from the context of the book, did the ending work for you considering the beginning of the book? Do you get what I mean? Does it have an arc that seems satisfying? That's actually hard for me to answer because I feel like knowing the end part of her story, as we already do, it's hard for me to separate in my head what was in the book and what was in my prior knowledge. We know what happens in Tokyo. We know what happens in Beijing. We know what happens in her private life. She and Aaron Pike have gotten engaged and we see her. So did I close the book and then finish it in my head? That's very hard for me to separate. But I think by answering that way tells me that the book did not feel complete. Yeah. And we talked about how the last two games are missing and we were shocked that they were. But I do think in one way this was a close enough of this chapter of her life. And that story arc worked for this chapter. Did I want more? Yeah. But her life's going to keep advancing anyway. And they got to make a call at some point we got to get the book out. But maybe there will be another book down the road about the next section of her life, the next phase. The not so hard parts. <laughs> I don't know. It probably still is hard. I, you know, talking here, it makes me think about all of those stories, particularly in Sochi, where you have the let's go back to the orphanage let's meet your birth mother. And knowing now just the horror she went through, I felt so bad for her on that trip back where she obviously didn't want to go. And what do you say to these people where you're faced with this trauma that you hopefully are getting better from or you're learning how to survive, but like having it in your face and then having this, seeing a supposed birth mother and what do you say to that? Why did you leave me? I, I, I realized my body wasn't what you hoped it would be, but you totally dumped me off and really inflicted a lot of trauma on me from that action. So, like, how do you get through that? Nobody, I, I'm sure the cameras all want, like, this happy ending or, oh, it's birth mother reconciliation or whatever. It's just like, I, I don't know what. I just want to know your medical information and then just go away. That's what would be for me, I think. I do want to jump in with, because I feel like I've been very critical of this book. And this book, as an athlete's biography or autobiography, is far superior to several that we have read. She was very open with so much and that Ukrainian visit and what she's experienced. And I agree, the way that the handler in Ukraine who was trying to push this surprise birth family visit was just so cruel. And she really talked it through. She did not pull punches on herself. She's told a lot of bad things about how she reacted and behaved and treated. And it's quite well written. 
So I don't want to be overly critical of the arcs and things because we've read some bad autobiographies, not just in book club, but just as Olympic and Paralympic fans, we've read some bad ones. And this is not at all one of the bad ones. No, this is right up there with Ben Ryan's book and with Abhinav Bindra's book. They Just right up there. This is a really interesting read and well-written read. But, you know, we have, we have thoughts. And the exact opposite of kind of how NBC portrays these athletes. She used the phrase inspiration porn when she talks about those package pieces. Oksana Masters was not referring to NBC in particular, but we've talked about that, that they put together these packages that's all about triumph over over struggle and I've achieved this greatness. How about we show the gray? How about we show these people not acting so great and the difficult sides of their personalities and not in a way that's, oh, they're so determined and fierce. Like, yeah, sometimes they're just not nice to each, to their family or not nice to people they're training with. And that's okay. That's allowed for athletes. And especially allowed for Paralympians and para-athletes in general. I mean, because that inspiration porn always includes the how did they become disabled. So we are like, I feel like able-bodied people say I am entitled to know what's wrong with you. And that's not necessary. I think if somebody says they're a para-athlete, they're supposed to be a para-athlete. And if they're trying to gauge the system, they'll get found out in classification, hopefully. I almost, I'm waiting for that first Paralympian to just look at the reporter and yell HIPAA at them (laughs) and just not answer the question as to how they were injured or what their medical status is. And like that basketball player just recently on the press conference talking about how the season is not a failure. And he really took that reporter to task. So Paralympians, if you are listening, please yell HIPAA at the reporter when they ask you too many questions about your medical status. I will mention that in the past two podcasts that you've had, we're recording this on what's the 17th, Laura Webster and Chuck Aoki, you never mentioned how are you? Why are you in a wheelchair? Why are your legs amputated? That was never mentioned. You stuck with sport and things around the sport. And I had to admit that was kind of refreshing. And if anybody needs to know, it's somewhere. You can find it. Yeah. We don't care. I mean, the bottom line is we really don't care. We want to know about their sport. I mean, we all know how obsessed I got with wheelchair rugby and sitting volleyball. All Mm -hmm. three of us got really into it, despite the Imagine Dragons song that they kept playing I'd in like Tokyo. Imagine Dragons. Come cool. on. <laughs> Be nice. So to me, I'm kind of like when I have my 45 minutes or however long we 60 minutes we have with the athlete, I don't want to waste time talking about their various operations. I want to know what kind of wheelchair you have and can you sneak under the net and do you guys spike each other in the face? So that's it's just that's what's interesting us. I think I can speak for that. Right. Yeah. And we actually had a conversation before we had our first interview with Taylor Lipset on how do we address this and how do we talk about parasports because it was our first one. We didn't really know much about the movement. We didn't know what to talk about. And a lot of our exposure to it was NBC coverage, which always had, it's always in every story. And it's in pretty much every Team USA story, too, and in bios. And so we just don't ask it. And that's our policy. And if it comes up 
And a lot of people will say, I think Chuck Aoki said, well, I can't do this because of this. Okay. And I, I remember when we were talking with McKenna Gear and we were talking about use of abdominals and sitting up and her condition, I don't remember what it is, but you know, she has a hard time with ab strength. And I remember distinctly when we were talking with her, she kind of paused because we didn't ask what her condition was. And she did say what she had, but it was almost like a little beat where she didn't know what to do with the fact that we weren't asking her about her condition. Nobody comes out really and says, oh, thank you for not asking about why I'm disabled. But I think there's, we see it talked about a little bit about how para-athletes want to be talked about as being athletes first, not the para first. So that's really our policy on that. I personally enjoy that. I think that's great. I mean, you stick with what you do for your able-bodied athletes with your ones that with your what's the with your Paralympic athletes as well. So I think Yeah. I mean, we didn't ask who have we talked to lately. Who's an Olympian we've talked to? We don't ask Katie Najat why she's freakishly fast. <laughs> we don't <laughs> on the runway, we don't ask though occasionally I'll throw in some questions like, How tall are you? Well, I mean, yeah, that's a different, but, but nobody's asked Michael Phelps, like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with you that you have such big arms, such long arms? Nobody asks Simone Biles, oh my gosh, why are you so short? People ask me that. It does get asked. Don't oh, say no. it doesn't get asked. It gets asked by stupid people, but yeah. <laughs> we don't ask it. We don't ask it because we don't, we yeah. just don't, we don't care. It's not important to us. It's not what we're interested in. We want to know how much your prosthetics cost. Yeah. And that's actually in this book. She talks about the expense and the complications and the issues with taking them off and putting them on. So that was that got me excited because I love getting into those pieces. And did you with notice that. since you were the one that saw the Kentucky Derby photos, she was wearing a dress and prosthetics were there to be seen. Whereas in the book, she mentions that she always wore pants. Summer, winter, didn't matter. She was going to hide that thing as much as it, it was worth until she started to meet other athletes like her where they didn't care. They just showed it off. And yeah, I have an amputated leg and I have a prosthetic. It's no big deal. Wrapping it up a little bit. We do sometimes get sucked into the Instagram and Twitter posts a little bit. I know that happened with Mike Schultz and you see all the good stuff because a lot of time, almost I would say 95, 99% of the time, they're going to be showing happy stuff where you get into the books that we're reading and you're seeing the other sides of stuff, the struggles, the mental issues that they might have. And it's important to understand that they are dealing with the same kinds of things that we are. It's not all happy sunshines and rainbows, no matter what their social media sa social media is showing them to be. So just keep that in mind as you're reading these. Don't be like, oh, I never knew that this would have happened to her. Well, you've got to see the person and not see the, the tag. <laughs> so any final thoughts on the book as a whole? I was disappointed we didn't get to visit the German snow tunnels that she trained in for Beijing. Right. But overall, really satisfying story. Definitely. Highly recommend. I know we've been critical over the last half an hour or so, but there's so much of this book to really learn from and to, it, it helped me 
gain more understanding of what some para-athletes go through and just where their stories come from. So I hope this book has done well. I really do. I hope people have been reading it. I know it's gotten some good coverage, but I do hope people understanding and excitement about watching Paris 2024 builds from reading this. And I I do recommend picking it up. Yeah, I do as well. I know that I had some issues with the ending and how things wrapped up, but her story is incredible. And where she is now in life compared to where she started is amazing. You can really see how the miracles just happened to get her in the right place at the right time. And things didn't seem like they were going to be going well. And it ends up turning out to be a benefit in the long run for her as she is able to have hopefully a healthy relationship with her family, with her boyfriend, fiance, and with herself. I think that's the biggest one. Excellent. Well, Claire, thank you so much. Thanks for choosing this book. This was a good one to read. What is coming up? Our next book is based on Soul 1988. Can you tell I sing along when it comes up? All right. The book is called The Dirtiest Race in History by Richard Moore, and it is about the men's 100 sprint where all of the drugs came in. So get excited for some doping. So then you've got the wah sound if we're going to get to the sound effects. I that. So get excited, get reading. It would be nice to get some feedback from listeners if possible. I, I love to, to see those. So if you can find The Dirtiest Race in History by Richard Moore, we would love to hear from you. Yes. Yes. Love it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that will be a great book. We'll be reading that in the fall, somewhere around the time of when Seoul took place. So it will coincide with the anniversary itself. Thank you, Claire. As always, we appreciate you coming by. Thank you. Read. Thank you so much, Claire. You can follow Claire on Twitter at Cauldron Light. We will have a link to that in our show notes. As we mentioned, our next book is The Dirtiest Race in History, Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis, and the 1988 Olympic 100-meter final by Richard Moore. We usually point you toward our bookshop.org website because the commission we earn from purchases made through our store link really helps us cover some of the costs involved with running this show. But this title has been a back order for a long time because it was published in 2013. So not necessarily a title that a lot of indie booksellers will have in stock. Check your local library, check another website to get this one. But we always do appreciate it when you buy any books through bookshop.org slash shop slash flame alive pod, because that really does help us out. And we'll be discussing this book in September during the 35th anniversary of the Seoul Olympics. It is the time of the show where we talk about our history moment all year long. We are looking at the Seoul 1988 Games, as it mentioned. It is the 35th anniversary of those this year. Giving you a little extra vacation, I'm going to go with a sailing story again. And I have been waiting for part two for weeks. Because <laughs> yeah, you promised me sailing part two and sailing part one was very good. So let's have it. 
Well, okay. We are going to look at the Finn race, which is the one-person dinghy. This was an open race, but the field was made up entirely of men. Competition, like many of these sailing regattas, seven races over eight days. Points awarded for placement in each race with the sailors' six best scores counting towards the final placement. So if you have a bad day, it's not going to really tank you in the rankings. If you have two bad days, well, we have an issue. Like we talked about in the last Soul Story, sailing was pretty wild competition. The Finn class was actually a very exciting race. There were controversies over disqualifications. Didn't know who was going to win the entire event until the final race. Sometimes, Which is unusual for a lot of these multiple day races. Yes. And the U.S. Virgin Islands won their first Olympic medal when Peter Holmberg won the silver. Nice. You would think Virgin Islands would have had a sailing tradition. Yeah, you would think, but maybe it's just getting somebody to competition level or actually having the funding to go. Today, we're going to focus on just race five of this competition. And as we talked about in episode 287, which was sailing part one, the sailing competition was not what anyone expected. Korea doesn't have much of a sailing history at this point in time test events in the site, which was Pusan. They had light winds when it came time for the actual games. A series of low pressure systems came blowing through the area, made it very windy, very rough seas. This surprised everyone throughout the entire competition. And by surprise, I mean, when I was doing research for this story, was finding information where sailors were just like, we got to put on weight because you needed the extra weight to keep more stable and go a little faster and they were like eating all these desserts for breakfast but you had to put on weight and maintain your fitness so it was really it was an interesting kind of struggle when you looked at this whole competition well the food at the olympics would help that you know free cafeteria of all kinds of things (laughs) and we've talked about the cafeteria (laughs) in other stories yes so race five of the fin class they're running, but also concurrently are the men's and the women's 470 races. So we have in this port and bay, we have three sailing races going on. And the 470 we have talked about before, that's where the women race for the first time. So the fin is a boat that is designed to handle harsh conditions. So when you have conditions where the waves are so high that you cannot see the race buoys that you need to go around, A good sailor on a fin can manage it. Okay. And in this race, that good sailor was Canadian Larry Lemieux. Lemieux was doing okay in the overall competition. He was in 13th place after race four. But in race number five, he was in the lead and in medal contention. And he lost sight of one of the race markers that was bobbing up and down and getting lost in these big waves. So another sailor gets in front of him and he's working to catch back up. And then disaster strikes on the next course over, which is about a hundred yards south of him in a good 32 kilometers offshore. Lemieux sees that there is a capsized 470 boat that is holding the men's Singaporean team crew, Joe Chan and skipper Shusha Her, which, and these two are Singapore's first Olympic sailors. So Their boat is capsized. Lemieux sees that one of the men, who turned out to be Shu, has a bloody hand and is hanging onto the boat. The other's not there. Doesn't know where the other one is. 
and Lemieux is racing, but and he's like wonders where is the other member of that crew, and he sees out of the corner of his eye that Chan is bobbing up and down in the water. And Lemieux realizes that even though Chan is wearing a life jacket, he could be lost at sea because the ocean was so rough that nobody's going to see him. And the first rule of sailing is if you see somebody in trouble, help him. And though usually capsizing doesn't require help, and he thinks this incident might be an exception, and boy was he right. Because as the crew, only Chan's butt had been in contact with the boat. So when they capsized, he kind of got thrown off and got hurt. His back got hurt. And even in pain, he tried to swim back to this boat. He's trying to do this in his life jacket, which is filled with water that he was using as ballast against the strong winds. And he's also got on a wetsuit and boots and a trapeze harness. So you can swim just a little ways in this getup, but not for very long. Chan's bobbing in the water. He's a good 25 yards away from his boat. And there's no way he's going to make the swim in those waters. So Lemieux leaves his course to go get Chan. He is sailing in four meter waves downwind through a current that is going against the wind. His boat's taken on water, but Lemieux manages to keep it upright. And as he sails by Chan, he grabs him by the back of his life jacket and swings him onto his boat, which is only made for one person. So in these conditions, two people in a one-person boat, pretty dangerous. And she's out of the race, obviously. Not yet. Oh, okay. So Lemieux takes Chan back to his boat because even though the boat's capsized, it's not going to sink. And they, he thinks they can probably get it right upright again and get back to sailing. What he didn't realize was that they had lost their rudder, which had made that plan impossible. So he goes out and looks for the rudder in these rough seas, and he finds it. <laughs> this is just incredible so clearly this story is focused on Lemieux's vision because first he sees Chan and now he sees the rudder I mean what is his x-ray vision happening right whoa so meanwhile Lemieux's coach Pat Healy knows that Lemieux was in the lead in his race and then he can't find him and he's like where is my sailor and even though the rules at the time stated that support staff and coaches weren't permitted in the race circle, remember, as we talked about this last time, by this point in the competition, the race committee had given permissions for coaches to be out there because they just could not handle all of the, the boats capsizing and they needed more people to go do rescues. So Healy goes onto the course looking for Lemieux. He finds him giving the Singaporeans the rudder from their boat. And Lemieux's like, oh, good, you're here. You take over. <laughs> And Healy takes over the rescue. Lemieux goes back to his race. As the casual Canadian that he is. Right? By now, the boats are really spread out. He's not going to be able to catch up. And he crosses the finish line. He was in first. He was in second when he left. And now he's in 21st place when he finishes. The race committee decided to award him a tie for second place in that race, which was the position when he went on his rescue mission. Overall, even though he was in medal contention, he ends up finishing the entire competition in 11th place. Did not get the medal he wanted, but he was awarded the Pierre de Coubertin medal for his sportsmanship. Wow. That is that is a story, man. And I vaguely remember hearing about this at the time, but obviously not knowing any of the details. But that's fantastic. What a great story. Right. Be prepared. We have sailing part three. Next time it's my turn. 
I'm excited. <laughs> they, they just kept coming. They just kept coming. Welcome to Shukflastan. It is the time of the show where we check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are guests and listeners that make up our citizens of Shukflastan, our very own country. First off, some results. Beach volleyball player Kelly Chang and partner Sarah Hughes got fifth at a tournament in Ostrava, Czech Republic. And in terms of Olympic qualification, they are currently ranked first. Shooter Tim Sherry swept the three events at the 300 meter U.S. National Championships. Yeah. Results from the LA Grand Prix, where we had several Shook Flastanis competing. Deanna Price finished third in the hammer throw with a season's best of 75.89 meters. So that is excellent for her. Pole vaulter Katie Moon did not have a great meet. She failed to make her height in competition, but she did much better at the Diamond League event in Florence, finishing first. By a mile. <sighs> Some days she got bad days. Some days she got great days. Author Andrew Marinus will be speaking at the Baseball Hall of Fame on August 10th at 1 p.m. about his book, Singled Out, The True Story of Glenn Burke. And I wish I could go to this. Paralympian John Register will be hosting a meal and Q&A with Olympian and Top Chef runner-up Don Burrell at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Museum on June 23rd. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Now, we first fell in love with Mayor Ann Hidalgo when she made her appearance I guess in Tokyo, when you had the transfer of the flag, because she was so elegantly dressed and so flashy. And she continues to just be the star of the run-up to Paris 2024. <laughs> and that is referring to now that she has announced that she wants the Olympics to be the first major event without single-use plastic and reduce the carbon footprint of the games by half. This is from Inside the Games. How this affects fans, you will not be able to take plastic bottles into competition venues. And But the story, I will say, was not clear if they'd allow you to have a reusable plastic bottle, but definitely not single use. Coca-Cola will be using reusable glass bottles, which will be interesting. The marathon will have reusable cups. And food-wise, there will be twice as many vegetarian food options available, and they will prioritize sourcing locally. Well, so she has made this a very environmentally focused games because the first initiative was cleaning up the Seine for the marathon swimming. And that yes. seems to be on track. So she's really put this environmental stuff in the forefront. We have more torch relay details. You love the torch relay so much. I do. I do love the torch relay. I don't know why. It's just when we saw it for Salt Lake City, it's tr it's, just, it's it, emotional. You don't yes. realize how emotional it is. And then you see it and you're like, why? Why am I standing here crying? <laughs> because first it was, why are we standing out here in the cold for something? It was cold. <laughs> Via the AFP and the IOC, the torch relay is going to have 10,000 runners. They will have 7,000 individuals and 3,000 who will be running collectively. So that will be interesting to see groups of people running with the torch. They will have gender equality for men and women. Each torchbearer is going to run the longest 200 meters ever because it's expected that they will carry the flame for about four minutes as they go 200 meters. That's like about as fast as I run. <laughs> How do you get to be a torchbearer? 
So this is the AFP story we got from France24.com. And somebody here was not able to do math very well because one third of the torchbearers will be selected by the organizing committee and sports bodies. One third will be selected by relay sponsors Coke and the French bank PBCE. One third will be selected by other Olympic partners. And then the final 10% will be selected by the regions hosting the relay. Is this like French math? Is this something we didn't learn in school? Perhaps, but that's apparently how they are getting all of the torch bearers. A fun fact, the International Olympic Committee forbids elected officials and religious figures from carrying the flame. I'm, I'm guessing, and this is speculation, that they don't want it to be like a patronage thing. Like, oh, the person in power gets the flame, and really the flame is supposed to be emblematic of people and the inspiration that other people can do and you know when you're in government and in religion sometimes you get some perks the selection process for torchbearers started at the beginning of june it runs through the end of the month you can visit the paris 2024 torch relay website to nominate someone but it is likely that those chosen through this process must be French or from living in France. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. The relay map and route itself will be unveiled on June 23, which is Olympic Day. They are planning that the route will go through 60 out of the 96 departments in France because some refused to take part, deeming the 180,000 euro expense of hosting the torch relay very cost prohibitive. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. several months ago that the, yes. they couldn't get people to have the torch relay because it was too expensive. <laughs> when you think about that, it's kind of like, well, maybe we can figure out how to make it a little cheaper. Maybe not have so much fanfare, but they're going to have a lot of security as well, which is probably a good chunk of the cost. There will be, quote, an itinerant bubble of security around the flame. To me, that doesn't sound like anything new because the flame is fairly well guarded, but hopefully it won't be like the flame bearer just surrounded by guards and you can't see anything. Hopefully, Maybe it'll be an actual bubble, like the Pope Mobile. <laughs> oh, it'll be like a giant hamster bubble. Right. You right? put the runner inside and then they just run. <laughs> and then they were like, the, yeah, because you zorb and you have to get in through that hole. So you, you just hop in through the hole. You hold onto the flame. The torch will just be and mounted in there. And then you yeah. run. Yes. Okay. I get it. I like. It. And then we would see those bubbles in the opening ceremony as well. Yes. Because then they can bubble down the sun. Oh, we're just designing this whole thing for them. <laughs> Oh, the bubbles could be dropped by the drone taxis. Oh, yes. It's going to be fabulous. <laughs> We're going to be so disappointed <laughs> if there's nothing dropped by these drone taxis. Well, no, we're going to go. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go. I thought there were going to be bubbles. <laughs> Didn't we fear that there were going to be bubbles in the ceremony? There are no like hamster bubbles. And then you're going to look at me and go, hey, <laughs> dummy. That was you and I who came up with that. And clearly we can't communicate that in French because I can say <laughs> un stilo, but can't understand what they say back to me. Oh, the Paralympic the Paralympic torch relay will arrive in Paris because the flame gets lit in Stoke Mandeville. It arrives in Paris on August 28th for the opening of the Paralympic Games. There will be 1,000 torchbearers for that. It will be a shorter relay, although it will pass through some 60 French departments as well. We have news about fan zones. 
this is exciting. So there are going to be fan zones set up for the Olympics and Paralympics in cities all across the country. And they are still determining how many there will be. But the organizers have received applications from 239 communities across France. Some of them are hosting competitions or are hosting training sites. So that makes sense that they also want to have the big fan zone site because if you couldn't get tickets, this is a way to still experience the games. So they're going to do a first map of sites, reviewing that on June 19th. There are already three large live sites confirmed for Paris at the Parc de la Villette, the Trocadero, and the Georges Valbon Park. And lastly, the Cultural Olympiad is getting underway. Inside the Games has reported that a series of 14 diptych posters, so these are two posters side by side that close like a book, once for the Olympics, once for the Paralympics. Those are being displayed along the banks of the Seine for a month. And this is all, the Cultural Olympiad is kind of just a, a long festival that explores the relationship between art and athletics. There will be several events from now through the end of the Paralympics all across France. We have news from LA 2028. And thank you to the Shuklastani listener, Anthony, for letting us know this on our Facebook group. The news is from OKCTalk.com that the LA organizing committee is considering moving the canoe a slalom events to the River Sport Rapids Whitewater Center in Oklahoma City, which is a national high performance center. It's an official training site for the U.S. And there's been a report from the International Canoe Federation, apparently, that L.A. may move the site. They have a temporary site in plan right now, but they might move it to Oklahoma City because it's an existing site. They wouldn't have to spend the money to erect and tear down a temporary site. And you get that regional games feel like we are getting more and more of. We'll see if that happens. Rowing could also move there, which would be interesting. Some soccer slash football could be there. We could have sort of a satellite city. Hey, one of, I, I can't remember who said it in the Facebook group, but somebody said, if France can send surfing to Tahiti, we can certainly <laughs> send an event to Oklahoma City. Well, we, when we talked about Atlanta, we talked about the football games being as far north as Washington, D.C. So this just, use the facilities you've got, spread the love. Right. And it, it definitely makes sense from a cost standpoint. The rowing would be interesting because it's supposed to be at Long Beach where the 1932 rowing competition was held, except for that course is shorter now. Yeah, people were not happy with that choice in the rowing community because of the shortness of the course. We shall We've see. Got options. Apparently, the final decisions on the entire sports program and associated venues for the LA 2028 Games will be announced by the end of the year. And I think a fair amount of that work will be happening at the session meeting in the fall. So we will keep an eye on that. Speaking of the sports program, <laughs> listener David tipped us to a tweet from Sky News correspondent Rob Harris, who said the International Olympic Committee is set to withdraw recognition of the International Boxing Association, although boxing is set to remain a sport at Paris 2024. This is interesting. These talks are going on kind of right as we are taping, so we'll have more word next week. But 
the big news in boxing world is that the IOC recognizes the International Boxing Association as the a federation for the sport. In recent months, there has been a schism in the membership where a bunch of members have left the IBA because it's being run by a Russian named Umar Kremlev, and there's still some ickiness. I would say <laughs> associated with Is that the what's technical going on? boxing term. I, I think so. I, I, the, you know, association management, <laughs> the technical term for federation management. A bunch of countries have defected and started their own association called World Boxing. The IBA is still upset with the IOC and its demands and has made the IOC has pointed out a number of things that needed to change. And the IBA has come back with counterpoints to those. I don't think the IOC is very happy about this. So we may find that boxing will not be recognized. I think plans are still too far along and they don't want to hurt the athletes who are prepping for Paris 2024. But I bet that this makes a big difference in LA 2028. It's a long time coming. Very true. So we shall see. I don't know if they're going to say, well, we recognize world boxing, but then world boxing also, they just set up. So they don't have any history of running events. I would imagine that even though you're dealing with, hey, we're a bunch of nations who are probably saying, hey, we're, we're the clean guys. We don't know how they run events. So they don't have the history and they don't have the track record yet. So we'll see. I don't, I'm really curious. Boxing is already not yet on the program for LA 2028. Will this be it for boxing? I hope so, to be honest. I've said more than once, I think the only way boxing is truly going to get cleaned up is if it gets kicked out, which I hate to say for the athletes, but it's in their best interest, ultimately. Like what happened with wrestling? I mean, them getting kicked out saved the sport. And I think we need to do the same thing for boxing and possibly weightlifting. It'll be interesting times. So that is going to do it for this week. Let us know what you thought of the hard parts. You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at flamealivepod. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook and you get all those cool things that other listeners share with you. And don't forget to get our weekly newsletter filled with other fun stories about this week's episode. You can sign up for that at flamealivepod.com. Next week, we will have part two of our conversation with Craig Spence, Chief Brand and Communication Officer of the International Paralympic Committee, where we get into some of the hard parts of dealing with global issues. And if you know what I mean, and if you, Russia, Belarus, looking at you. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. <laughs>